1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, world. This is the Global Media and Communication Podcast Series. I am Aswin Punathambhikar, the Director of the Center for Advanced Research in Global Communication. This is Jing Wang, the Senior Research
1: Manager at CARC.
0: Our podcast is part of a multimodal project powered by CARG here at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania.
1: At CARG, we produce and promote critical, interdisciplinary, and multimodal research on global media and communication. We aim to bridge academic scholarship and public life, bringing the very best scholarship to bear on enduring global questions and pressing contemporary issues. The title is actually one that I I um, didn't come to until fairly late in the project. I was interested in you know a descriptive title um, that would not be seeming to make the claim to be telling the the history of Latino TV. Um, I found and I now I think it's very important that I have the subheading that it's a history and not the history. Um, I do think. That it's an important step, and that it was actually this is actually the first book that is you know beginning to explore a chronological trajectory of Latino representation and authorship in um, U.S. English language television. That is Mary Beltran,
0: Associate Professor in the Department of Radio, Television and Film at the University of Texas at Austin. And I am your host for this episode, Lucila Rosas, PhD student at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania and fellow at CART. In today's episode, Professor Beltran and I discuss Latino TV, a history a fascinating account of Latina participation and representation in U.S. English language television. Let's begin. Professor Beltran, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, what sparked your interest in the topic and, and how did you begin imagining it as a book?
1: Well, the roots of this book go back decades, actually, to my years in graduate school in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And at that time I wrote a a seminar paper that was my first attempt at better understanding why Latinos at that time were so underrepresented in what was then mostly broadcast television, um, even as we were becoming the largest non-white ethnic group and were also known to be avid TV watchers. Um, It was a subject that I then began coming back to over the years as I did research on, I Love Lucy, um, Chico and the Man, and other series, and um, was also interviewing Latinx media professionals for other research projects. And as the Latino TV audience has continued to grow dramatically and the numbers of you know Latinx professionals hired to work in television has not grown dramatically. I felt increasingly that there was a need for a book-length study that would begin to explore some of the histories for Latinos in English language TV, um, which is only one facet of exploring um, Latinx television. But I I felt like um, perhaps this book could could begin to um, encourage other scholars also to really develop, um, you know, other projects in in Latinx television studies.
0: Um, So, Related to this, how does this book figure in your broader uh, scholarly trajectory and identity? And what conversations in Latinx studies and media and communication studies do you engage with in the book?
1: Well, as a scholar, um, I guess I would say that I've, I've aimed to illuminate how social hierarchies and cultural citizenship or like having a voice and agency in society through the media um, are manifest in U.S. television and film and also celebrity culture um, and and through that, often with the focus on Latinos and on female voices and, and representation. Um, and so I feel that the book has been, you know, very much a part of this trajectory in, you know, exploring this particular, you know, this particular medium and various histories within that. Um, you know, definitely it's, it, it has always felt that, you know, U.S. television studies and histories um, have often left out Latinas and Latinos and that television has often been left out of um, Latina and Latino cultural histories and studies. Um, And so I really hope that I can raise questions about television story worlds and production cultures and how particular social groups are represented or not represented within, um, within those spaces and then the impact of that. Um, also to raise questions about you know, definitions of the American audience um, in relation to Latinos and, and women. Um, and then certainly in Latino cultural studies, like thinking about how to define like definitions of Latino activism and cultural labor in relation to television, I think are, are areas that are you know, really, we could do more work within. And so um, I hope those are ways in which I'm contributing.
0: Um, I, I I know like you've mentioned this aspect of like cultural uh, citizenship, um, and so I wanted to ask you about these concepts that you use. Because you use a concepts such as cultural citizenship, also Maya citizenship excess and also citizen deficit. And Gloria Saldua's uh, making faces, um, and you feature this concept centrally in your in, in your book. So, can you explain a bit more about how they help you frame this work?
1: Sure. I, I was really interested in breaking out of um, the the typical uh, methods of you know study of what appears on TV screens of simply looking at characters and narratives. Uh, instead, to investigate and document the evolution of Latinos breaking into the television industry, having an impact on the narratives, and ultimately beginning to tell their own stories. Um, I was inspired in part by also by Ella Shohat and Robert Stam's discussion of focalization or the dynamics of having a voice and putting it out there, as, a, as a, a method of study of media representation that could tell us much more than simply um, study of stereotypes, which you know traditionally had been the way that people began you know looking at Latino representation. And so you know I found that the concepts of cultural citizenship and of Ansaldúa's notion of haciendo, haciendo Caras or making face, you know, w- th- th- these were ways that, that I could articulate this concept in relation to television storytelling, which is what I decided to center in my research. Um, and so I found, you know, I found that you know, offered me a way to just really focus on, you know, when did Latinos begin to have a voice in the production, in in, in the writer's room, and when did they actually begin to lead writer's rooms and, and truly be telling their own stories. And once I decided on that, structuring the book project became a lot easier. So let's
0: maybe talk about the book structure. I was... Um... I was like thinking about the the title, just like starting with the title, which is Latino TV a history. So It seems to be suggesting that this is maybe one of the possible histories on this topic. Um, So I wanted to ask you, why do you think this particular history of Latino TV is important among many others that could be told? And if you can tell us a bit about the particular conjuncture that made it urgent and relevant to excavate this
1: story, this history. The title is actually one that I, didn't come to until fairly late in the project. I was interested in, you know, a descriptive title um, that would not be seeming to make the claim to be telling the, the history of Latino TV. Um, I found, and I now I think it's very important that I have the subheading that it's a history and not the history. Um, I do think that it's an important step, and that it was actually this is actually the first book that is you know beginning to explore a chronological trajectory of Latino representation and authorship in um, U.S. English language television. Um, but there was no way that this book or any one book could fully explore the topic or all of the television series that might be discussed or all of the um, media professionals who were involved in in making them. So I I did very much want to highlight that it was just my version, one historian's version of um, the stories that could be told. Um, And I I did think it was, you know, I thought I feel like the timing um, was important because I was able to interview some professionals who um, are much, you know, really getting older and will soon perhaps not be around or be able to relate what they remember from their time working in television or work, you know, working as an actor in some cases. Um, and so I'm glad I was able to capture um, some of those stories. Um, but I very much feel like this book is, is just a, a beginning and hopefully is going to, you um, inspire and encourage other um, scholars to begin to fill in more gaps and tell all of the many stories that I wasn't able to tell or chose not to tell within this version of um, Latinos in TV.
0: So also related to like the book structure um, and just like thinking about how it is um, organized chronologically, um, can you tell us uh, about why did you decide to start um by discussing kids tv westerns of the 1950s did you consider any other starting points to begin your exploration i i think because you have such a big like corpus of um let's say data uh or 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 things that you might be like looking at um I just like wonder how do you, did you decide to start with this, and then like do this like chronological um, like organization for the book.
1: Um, let's see. I'll answer first the question just about chapter one, and then maybe I could talk a little bit about um, how I ended up deciding on the organization in the process. Um, just to talk about chapter one, which focuses on. Um, The Cisco Kid and the Disney series about El Fago Baca and um, uh, the animated series um, that I focused on as well. Um, You know, I, I ended up making kids TV westerns the focus because I felt that illuminating the duality of what we might call the duality of Latinx representation. If you think about the Cisco kid and Pancho, who was his sidekick, um, this idea that there often will be a, a so-called good Latino hero who was very um somewhat European in style and the way he spoke. Um, paired with a comical um, sidekick who spoke broken English and was much more indigenous looking and was, you know, perhaps the bad Latino to the good Latino. I I really wanted to explore that because I I felt like that if I could understand and help readers understand um, that this duality is still sometimes seen in, in contemporary images and narratives and certainly, the, the kind of criminal Latino characters we sometimes see, you know, has some connections to the Pancho character, even though Pancho was um, seen as more of a heroic figure. I was I I felt like this is there are traces of of some of, some of our contemporary trends in Latino representation that we could find in those '50s shows. So it's partly why I chose that um, as a starting point. And also um, I just happened to find a lot of archival material about these shows that would allow me to explore them in depth, but um, as, as people might guess, I had considered beginning with an in-depth focus on I Love Lucy in the 1950s as well. Um, but ultimately, you know, I've, I decided that I Love Lucy and Desi Arnaz's success within that show and as a performer generally and also as a TV executive later was more of an anomaly than a success that spawned changes in su- subsequent decades in the TV industry. Like, I think that only. In maybe the recent decade, do we really see kind of a connection of a Latino performer going on to become an executive and producer? And so I just didn't it, it just seemed like it It was a success and it was unique and, and in some ways didn't change the industry. Um, I also had done research and written on Desire Arnaz and I Love Lucy in my previous book, and I wasn't sure that I had more to say about it. And I didn't really feel like I should just reprint, and you know, a former chapter in this new book. And so, I, I included some of that material in the introduction of the book instead. And and so, um, that is how I began um, to talk more about um, what I what I chose to do in terms of organizing the book as a whole. Um, it really took time to come to. Decide how I might how I might structure it. It was a challenge. Um, in the first years of the project, I I realized I had to initially try to gather as much information as I could about series and pilots that had had been produced that included um, lead Latino characters. And there wasn't really one place where I could find all of that. And so I literally, <laughs> I spent time just creating my own chronology of shows that were proposed. If I could find that information that was especially difficult if it didn't make it to pilot or that pilot didn't, get, didn't go to season to actually have a whole season. But I just worked on compiling information on all of the TV shows that I could could find, um, and I, I did focus on strictly on English language television that was mostly primetime and mostly for adults. Um, but I did that. I began to try to interview um, media professionals that worked on those shows, and as I was doing this, I was looking to see like were there archives that where I might access some production information or where I might access actual uh, taped episodes. Um, as I talk about in the book, like most of this material is not archived and most of it's actually not preserved in any way that I could, could find. Um, But based on gathering, like sometimes as I was mentioning related to the Cisco kid, like if I could find archival material, it was, I knew that that would help me to tell a story about a particular decade or a particular era. So it was really over time as I saw what I had that I began to organize the book into to chapters. I wasn't sure initially if it would be decade by decade, but I wanted to show change over time. So I knew ultimately it would be um, chronological in the way I would um, uh, depict it. But um, like certainly with the chapter on 80s and 90s failed series, I could have picked a, a few different series to focus on instead of the two that I made. the fo- and, and initially I didn't even, I thought, oh, I'll just try to tell all of the stories, but it, it became overwhelming. I realized for readers, it, there wouldn't be a, a story. So I really tried to think about how to tell a story about each era that would, you know, really have a make, that would make sense. And I know each chapter is a bit different because different things were happening but, um, and then over time, it also, I came to structure it around um, writers having greater agency and um, beginning to tell more nuanced stories, I think, as a result of that. And um, also just in relation to how television changed, I think in the 80s, viewers weren't necessarily expecting really complicated stories. Whereas now if we are you know, watching, maybe streaming television in particular, I think we often expect a very complex um, story and that we think we're going to have well-developed characters. And so I think that some of the greater nuance of Latinx representation is just kind of following how TV has evolved more generally too. Um, so yeah.
0: so I think it works, the, the way you've organized the the book works pretty well. And I can also see kind of like, it's easy to see how things like change and overlap. So I think it's, it's, it's an amazing work. And um, as you were speaking, I was thinking about the amount of things you had to like look at, because you, you said, you said you um, had to do some, some archival research, and you combined this with interviews as well. So I was, just like thinking about how it was for you to put together the traces of uh, of this history, um, especially in the cases when it was like difficult to find information because some of the series were not preserved right um, or maybe there was one chapter that was like preserved here and there and you could not find all of the information so how how did you how were you able to? like, filling these gaps, maybe, or how were you able to articulate all of this, like, uh, information, the different sources, and also articulate what you were, like, looking at in the archives with the interviews?
1: Well, I'm glad you asked, because actually a lot of the materials I found were not in archives, and so I did searches on ebay and google and uh, amazon and um, often having to look for what you know what are called extra textual traces of these shows and so that could be um, an ad that had appeared in tv guide um, a poster that was made to promote a show Um, Sometimes also the promotional bumpers, the kind of mini commercials that that um, the broadcast networks used to show in between their TV shows that would um, promote another show to encourage people to to watch it. And um, so for some TV shows, what I might find would be a 30 second commercial For others, I only might find a film poster. Um, And so, I mean, that is, you know, that would mean it would be very difficult to make that actually a case study of the chapter. But I could use, you know, I could use those um, artifacts to talk about a whole decade to kind of, you know, show some of the trends in those kinds of promotions for all of the shows that featured Latina or Latino lead characters. So I, I usually didn't know what I could find. Um, and uh, like sometimes I got lucky and someone that I interviewed, a you know, professional who'd been working for two decades, um, gave me a DVD that included episodes of a show called AKA Pablo that ran in the mid 80s and i would never have seen these episodes but they were shared with me and so it really i mean there were i guess we would call them like armchair collectors who used to videotape what they watched on television and then actually took the time to then transfer them to later uh, media forms so that they could be preserved and watched like you know in this case on a dvd player and um, sometimes that's the only existing copy that that I have and, and that actually cannot be found in a library. So it was a lot of um, detective work um, and just really being persistent and, and kind of maintaining files on each of the series and then just looking everywhere that I could for um, traces of those shows. Um, I also could find... Um, reviews sometimes by TV critics that were published in newspapers and are you know, available through library databases. And so I just tried to look at every possible angle um, for each show. And sometimes I was very lucky. And you know, there are a few shows um, even going back to the 80s that are preserved at the Library of Congress or um, the UCLA Film and Television Archive and so it was, you know. I just looked at every potential archive and and did what I could to compile all of that. Um, in fact, I have realized I need to create. Um, I'd like to find a way to give access of that material to future scholars, and so that's something that I, I'm thinking about um, making possible. You know, through my own like university um, cloud space and and that sort of thing, or perhaps through the university library at, at Texas.
0: I think um, it is also amazing that you were able to find all of these traces, uh, because I feel like now maybe it will be easier to find some of the the stuff that's um, I don't know being streamed or um, in television right now, because it can be more like as easily digitalized. But there's also maybe. Um, a lot of um decisions around what to preserve and what not depending on the resources you have or um so i i was wondering if um if you think that maybe the lack of um access to some of the material you have um or the the lack of public access to the material that you were like ultimately able to compile um, is related to some decisions about like what was like worthy of preservation and what was not worthy of preservation in the archives.
1: Yeah, that's a really uh, great point. You know, I think that... um, television has not been typically valued as highly as film in relation to, um, the idea of, of preservation. Um, there are many, many film archives and, and certainly there is some archived television now, but I think that, um, it's still relatively recent that I think, you know, archivists have thought about archiving television. And I think that the more that we see scholarly publications on television, the more it might be considered a cultural artifact that is meaningful um, and, uh, you know, definitely worthy of, of preservation. And, and so that's a great point. I, I, hope, I hope that my book does play some role in that regard.
0: Um, so I wanted to touch on one trans- transversal argument of your book, um, that is um, that there, there seems to be a marked um, absence and also disregard of Latino, Latina, Latinx writers, producers, and actors, and um, that like um, impacts uh, representation on TV and also. Says something about like the lack of Latino authorship on on TV, and you argue uh, that more than just impacting the possibilities of success of many TV series featuring Latino stories between the 1970s and 1990s, it also affected how Latinidad was understood as related to U.S. national identity. Um. So, but there has there ha there seems to have been some sort of change maybe uh, by the 2000s, um, 2010s that maybe led to the inclusion of more um, Latinx people in the roles um, in front and behind the camera. So I just like wanted to ask you what, um, what changed, even though uh, it seems that there are like very timid, very like a small changes, like what changed between the previous decade, decades, and uh, what happened
1: in the 2000s. What a great question! I mean, I think that there are answers that are societal and and have had an impact on um, who works in the media industries and 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 um, what gets produced. Um, and then I think there are also um, answers that are much more. Linked specifically to like media, the media industries and media watching um, to to address the societal um, changes. You know, I, another thing that I that I learned more about that I hadn't hadn't fully thought about before I did this project is the fact that it's really in the 1970s that U.S. Latinos are more um, more U.S. Latinos are able to go to college. And um, the first generation of Latinos in the U.S. that worked in television were were uh, college students and college graduates for the most part, and second generation um, uh, Latinos for the most part who um, uh, often had a very different situation than their parents had had. Um, and so I really, I mean, I do think that it, it's taken, and, and is it partly linked to education? Um, many, many more Latinos have moved into the middle class in the U.S. as well. And so I think that there's been a status, you know, a major status um, evolution um, for U.S. Latinos linked to education and class and opportunity that are, you know, all those things being linked. Um, so there's that. And then in relation to the media industries in particular, um, you know, I I think that by the 2000s that we've, you know, we witnessed the entrance of of a number of Latino writers and producers, um, a greater number of Latino actors who had achieved some celebrity status, you know, who could be seen as the potential star of of a TV show. And um, also we, we had witnessed by the 2000s other Latino performers outside of TV, I especially I'm thinking of Selena, who you know really proved that there was a profit to be made um, in various media industries in the US from popular Latino and Latina performers. And I think all of those things made a difference in um, TV executives having more interest in green lighting, TV series with Latino um, lead characters. So like, and then every series it was successful, like especially um, George Lopez and Ugly Betty. You know, I think that each show, you know, had a positive impact to encourage the next show. Um, and then I think also TV executives were becoming a lot a lot more aware that most U.S. Latinos were bilingual and did watch at least some English language TV Whereas I think in the 70s, there really was often the mythology that Latinos only watched um, Spanish language television. So there'd been some pretty big um, mindset changes, I think, even though we still really don't see uh, we, we do not see um, uh, enough TV shows today that are really representing Latinos in a, a uh, you know, dominant ways, so we still have a a lot of room to grow it's not the numbers are not necessarily much better than they were in the 2000s
0: that's a a great answer i related to that i I was also thinking about um how this more like rich uh portrayal of latinidad this richer portrayal of, of latinidad um and in TV series um, right now uh, can have uh, impact or has been impacting uh, recent views of Latinidad and US national identity. So what I, I wanted to to know is how do you see that these changes of like, authorship and representation have uh, impacted also depictions of like race, class, and gender as related to, to Latinidad? Like how do we see this diversification? Um, and maybe you can also give me some examples of like maybe characters or series that amplify this representation or this complexity.
1: Um, well, we definitely are seeing examples of, you know, Latino characters that are not Mexican-American, that are not, um, you know, heterosexual, um, that are of, you know, different different ages and classes and, and situations. Um, you know, I, I think the shows that I admire the most in this regard are ones that are very much informed by the experiences of their creators. Um, you know, like a show like Vida, um, which um, is about two sisters who are they? They do happen to be Mexican American, and so that's something we've seen very, very often. Um, but these are two sisters who have left their their um, original neighborhood in, in East Los Angeles and have gone on um, to to different lives and and return and and are um, in the middle of you know issues over gentrification of their former neighborhood who, you know, have um, connections to, um, you know, Mexican-American um, people who, who grew up in their n- neighborhood who identify very differently in terms of, you know, class and their religious affiliation and, and sexuality. And um, ultimately it's a very, you know, queer um, identified narrative that's very, you know, female centric and, um, you know, I think that this is the kind of kind of work that Tanya Serracho has been known for as a playwright uh, prior to her coming to television to work as a television writer and creator. Um, there have been other shows more recently, also that have focused on. Uh, you know Venezuelans and and Dominican Americans and Cuban Americans. And it's becoming much more common um, to just it's not it used to be that we could assume that every every um, television series with a major Latino character that the character would be Mexican American or Mexican. And that I think is really finally beginning to change. Um, and I definitely are, am seeing, you know, many more um, narratives that are focusing on, you know, class divisions and racial divisions among Latino communities and and um, mixed communities with a large you know, Latino community within it. Um, and so it's really refreshing to see different kinds of stories, you know, beginning to be told. But I mean, there still is, it seems to be a preference, and perhaps it's because the TV industry is centered in the Los Angeles area, that perhaps when um, producers and writers think of creating a story about Latinos, like it happens to be often situated in East LA. Um, But there are beginning to be some stories that are set in other parts of uh, the United States and and, um, outside the United States as well. So, um, hopefully, this is a new trend that is going to grow. So, one thing now
0: that we're like talking about authorship and representation, it seems, and many like media and communication scholars um, have argued that representation is maybe has its limits, uh, especially in the current moment because of. Um, there has been a proliferation of differences in media, and there's also a big emphasis of visibility for visibility safe. Uh, and maybe that has made us like, reach a point in which representation is like limited in helping to achieve social change. And so considering this in the current moment of, of streaming services and digital media um, that has led to an abundance of TV content, uh, what do you think representation still matters in the case of Latino TV, particularly in the context of the U.S.?
1: Well, I think you I, I think in bringing up the work of Herman Gray and, and uh, Sarah Bene Weiser on these questions is interesting because I do think, you know, in fact, like my my choice to do as much as I could focus the the book on cultural citizenship as opposed to just solely representation is in part trying to address this issue. Like it's, there are, there are times, uh, I think in terms of the construction of, of sometimes a a Latino character within a television series, that's actually about more about maybe the white lead characters. Like there've been times in which these Latino characters have felt like visibility for visibility's sake. Um, and then there are, are moments now I, that I've noticed as well in which there seems to be a Latino queer character for whom like their sexual identity doesn't isn't really fully developed in a way that makes sense within the storyline. And then it can feel like it's an intersectional Latino representation also for visibility's sake. So I do think that can happen. But I, I think if we focus more on, on Latino cultural citizenship and authorship within television, we begin to, um, we can be looking more closely at whether Latino perspectives, are actually um, included, or are are not, and so in this way, I think narratives that 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 are reflecting Latino. Uh, perspectives, I think if we have, I think if they're included, that they still matter, and especially in this recent era, um, in which, you know, we're really having to fight against a kind of, um, you know, white supremacist uh, mindset. Um, And so, you know, and, and as Latinos are now 20%, just about of the American population, or one in five, Americans, you know, there's really still an urgent need for um, more Latino media professionals and executives, and for more in, more um, portrayals of Latinos and more nuanced portrayals of Latinos, um, both in children's programming and in adult uh, programming. I, I
0: found really interesting in your book was um, the role of activists. Um, that we're also involved in t v production um and that uh help maybe like doing some important like changes in public t v in the sixties and seventies, I believe um and I was like thinking if you can tell us a bit more about um. Uh, what do you think are the legacies of this moment of public television? Um, in what in what will come later on in terms of um, Latino TV in the U.S.?
1: Well, you know, I, I feel that the the '60s and '70s um, Latino um, public affairs series marked a the moment when when U.S. Latinx lives, you know, as they were really lived. Um, became the focus of, of TV programming. Um, you know, it, And it, I mean, it also marked the moment when Latinos began to work as, as television producers for the first time, um, making decisions about what would go on the screen. Um, I mean, there were times when there were limitations to how um, revolutionary these programs could be, um, especially if they were funded by the Ford Foundation, which a lot of them were, Um, you know, but there were some ways that producers worked to get around that, um, John Noriega has done research on this also, um, you know, that, that at times, um, in the programming, some, some content was included in Spanish and they, the, the, um, public TV, uh, employees that were working around them often didn't speak Spanish and things slipped by, um. You know, and it it did make a difference back then. I mean, they had they had funding from the Ford Foundation for many of these programs. It turned out the funding dried up for the most part by the early 1970s. And so it was a kind of um, short lived window that had a lot of promise. Um, I mean, after that, like different public TV stations have had Latino focus shows ever since. But there wasn't there wasn't the same number around the country at different um, at different public TV stations as there were, was in that time. Um, I think that there was, you know, a real activist impulse that drove um, many of the Chicano and New Yorican and other Latino uh, producers and and white producers also who were interested in, in working on the programming. Um, you know, I think that that activist impulse, um, we can still see it sometimes, I think, in the minds of you know, Latinx creators today who are interested perhaps in, you know, being part of the commercial media industries, but also in like presenting very nuanced and, and, um, um, sympathetic portrayals of, um, Latinx people of, of all different backgrounds, um, you know, and so I think that, you know, this interest in, in, um, putting our lives out there on on the screen is still um, not that different from what some of the the producers of the 1970s um, might've been thinking about when they were making these nonfiction shows.
0: Um, so I I just have a few more questions so we can wrap it up. Um, so one thing I, I was wondering is, uh, have you built on this work since its publication, and what, uh, it, how so, and how has this led to um, in terms of uh, new
1: ideas, conversations, and maybe projects that you have? So, um, you know, I'm, I'm still sorting through um, where I may go with this next in relation to, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in what's happening for um, Latino focused shows and the writers that are working on their shows in, in recent years um, you're probably aware that um, the writer strike, is, there's a writer strike going on right now. And um, much of what's been put forth as the main concerns um, that the writers are trying to fight for are things that I think are really especially affecting um, Latino writers, you know, many of whom are working right now in streaming television um and well and also we've had a number of um, cancellations of shows that began a few years ago um and so i one thing i've I've thought about is um working on perhaps uh, a project that would put me on a set um you know or in a writer's room focused on um you know what that process is in relation to uh, perhaps making decisions about whether some cultural details are too specific um, so that some of, members of an audience might not relate to it, or um, keeping all of those nuances within the storyline and kind of learning more about how that process works and, and using that to kind of uh, kind of shine a different light on uh, Latinx television. Um, another possibility that's been suggested to me is, is perhaps um, making a documentary um, th- that would uh, you know relate some of the information, some of my findings from my research, and then involve you know new interviews with the professionals that I interviewed as a part of the project. Um, and thinking of this doc, you know, I would, of course, be working with filmmakers because that's not not my expertise. Um, but the idea would be to create a documentary for a college or high school audience. And so that's something I'm, I'm really intrigued with.
0: Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. And thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to our Global Media and Communication podcast. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to our email CARGC at ASC.UPEN.Edu or follow us on Twitter. Until next time.